Please join me as we read Psalm 131 together. Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Please be seated. We just read together with, uh, with Patrick, Psalm 131, David's psalm, and in verse two, the psalmist David writes, I have calmed and quieted my heart, my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. So the first question is, what does that child with mother, weaned child with mother imagery mean for us? It's talking about our relationship with God. What does that actually mean? And the commentators all agree that in the ancient world, a child was weaned, which basically meant it's, it's not getting fed anymore when it's about three years old. Now my problem is the word weaned and saying calmed and quieted. I don't know if you guys have ever been a three-year-old or met one, but this is what they look like. Not calm and quiet. They look nothing like a, a state of peacefulness in my mind. So when one of my kids was almost three years old, we had these beautiful tulips outside of our house in Richmond, and he had a little plastic bat and was batting all of the tulip heads off. I took the bat, scolded him, and then walked away. When I walked around the corner of the house, he didn't follow me. I turned around to go back, and he was over there just whapping the tulips with his hand. I was at Cafe Amore just the other day, and there's a couple that I've seen there for years. I know them because they're Steeler fans, but didn't know they had little kids. And I saw their three-year-old and five-year-old. The five-year-old was walking with them, and the three-year-old was going out into the parking lot. There were puddles and she wanted to go in them. The dad called out, honey, no, those aren't the right shoes, don't, don't, and she just kept right on marching towards the puddles, right? That's what a three-year-old does. If you tell a three-year-old to not drop the peas and carrots on the floor, because they'll find that's kind of a fun thing to do. Peas and carrots just sort of drop, and you don't really want to eat them as a two, three, four-year-old, so you just take them off the plate and drop them, right? Honey, no, please don't do that. And they just keep dropping them. And then they give you that like maniacal stare, like I can't understand what you're talking about, just, you wanna, you wanna bring it on? <laughs> yeah, what are you gonna do about it, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, right. Do you know who I am? I will make your life misery. <laughs> Calm and quiet your soul, like a three-year-old? Really? <laughs> Some of the commentators do a good job of comparing it to a, a screaming child of a, a screaming child, that child that's a baby that's just wanting food and saying, hey, we're not like those babies. But I actually prefer John Goldengay, who's one of the commentators, a, a Hebrew scholar at the highest levels, who said that the Hebrew wording of being weaned, along with the metaphor that's being suggested here, has more of the hint of a just-fed child, rather a just-fed infant. In other words, the wording can mean a baby who has just been fed and has been removed, right? kind of like weaned, and is now full. Now a weaned three-year-old may be a nightmare. 
But an infant that has just been fed, if you've ever seen one, they're completely satisfied, content, restful, at peace. Which is why babies and TV and commercials are so funny, right? So the E-Trade baby, many of you guys know him, came out a number of years back. This is cute little baby standing in front of a computer screen who starts talking, which is cute and funny in and of itself. He says, investors like you could lose tens of thousands of dollars to hidden fees. Then he goes on to explain what you should be doing using E-Trade. And of course, we love babies. They're cute. We want to see them. And the baby talking is funny, but it's also ironic. And that's part of the ploy of the marketing tool. It's incredibly ironic because infants, babies, are not worried about investments. They're not up anxious at night wondering if the stock market's going to take a plunge. An infant that's being cared for by its parents, being fed, does not have worries about their, their test tomorrow or the project that's incomplete at work or whether they're going to lose their job. Babies aren't worried. They're not stressed out and anxious about tomorrow. They're not wondering if their friends still like them. And so when a baby is fed, it's had all it needs. This is what David is talking about. He's talking about being content and at peace because he's looking to God to give him what he needs. And he's looking to God alone. The parallel phrase of being weaned is used in Psalm 116, verse 7, when the psalmist writes, you have dealt bountifully with us, O Lord. He recognizes the Lord is the one who deals bountifully with us, who feeds us. And so he trusts in God and is fully resting in the Lord. Which is not like most of us. <laughs> Instead, we are anxious and stressed all the time because we are striving performance-based achievers. Judith Shulovitz, a journalist, wrote in a pretty well-read article in 2003 New York Times called Bringing Back the Sabbath about her own uh, struggles with weekends when she was in her 20s living in New York City. She said she got to this point where she would just feel awful on the weekends. And she realized that maybe she needed to return to Sabbath practice of her Jewish roots. She said that there was a, a psychoanalyst named Shandor Ferenzi, who was a, a student of Freud, who identified back in the early 1900s a, a disorder called Sunday neurosis. Sunday neurosis was suffering from the Sabbath. When you stop achieving, you feel awful. And she saw herself on weekends in New York feeling awful about herself. And here's what she wrote about us as achievers. She said, ours is a society that pegs status to achievement. In the Darwinian world of New York 20-year-olds, everything, even socializing, reading, or exercise, felt like something to accomplish. She's talking about all of us now. We even pursue leisure activities with an exemplary degree of professionalism and perfectionism. We are striving even when we are resting. 
One of the most famous TED Talks of all time is by Brene Brown, who is a professor at the University of Houston who has studied for almost a decade shame. In her talk on shame, which was not her most famous one at TED, she writes about how all of us experience the pressure of expectations, but men and women experience it differently. Now, maybe you don't fit into these categories, but maybe you do. Here's what she said about the expectations that women feel, the pressure that they're under. She said, for women, the goal in life is to do it all. Do it perfectly and never let them see you sweat. No pressure, but have a perfect career, a perfect family, a perfect social life, a perfect body. Make sure you read all the perfect books and have the perfect vacation and post it so that other people can see how perfect you are and how little effort it took. Shame for women is the web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we are supposed to be. No pressure, women, but most of you feel like be perfect is all you have to do. A combination of June Cleaver, Mary Tyler Moore, and a supermodel. If you can do that, you're good. For men, she said in her studies, it was different. Shame, she, she spoke, is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one thing. Do not be perceived as weak. The expectation for men is strength, control, and achievement. So men, you don't have to be a combination of June Cleaver and Mary Tyler Moore and a supermodel. You simply have to be Tony Stark or Bruce Wayne. For those of you who don't know, those are billionaire superheroes. That's all you have to do, guys. Be a billionaire superhero and everything is good. How many of you have ever wondered if you were good enough, deserving, worthy, whether you measure up? How many of you have ever been anxious or stressed about schoolwork or your job? How many have ever found yourself clamoring to be noticed and get credit or afraid you're just going to be forgotten by your friends? How many of us feel like no matter how much we do, we're never quite sure it's enough? And so we keep striving and putting up the front that we've got it all under control. The problem is we live our lives looking outward, comparing ourselves to others and seeing if we measure up. Or we look inward, trying to let our feelings push away the disquiet of anxiety when we should be looking upward, metaphorically speaking, to God and God alone. Resting in God's love and in the finished work of the cross. David writes about this. He says in verse one and three, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Instead of looking outward or inward, looking upward to God, he says, looking to God begins with the, hum the hum humil humility to admit our limitations. Looking to God involves being dependent and vulnerable. 
not capable and perfect. It's trusting in God to give us what we really need. Now think about it, David is the king in that ancient world, which means he's an absolute monarch with all the power, all the wealth, all the armies. But he does not say, he does not say, look to me and I'll take care of it. He says, let's all look to the Lord. Let's put our hope in him. Let's rest in his arms. This seems like the difference to me in the story of Mary and Martha between Mary and Martha. If you don't know the story, it's this. Jesus is going to visit his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they are going to throw a dinner party for the village and the disciples. Martha, in Luke 10, is the older sister who's running around as host, making sure all the table is set, the food is being prepared, everyone's taken care of, the wine is ready, everything's going just right. And meanwhile, while she's working really hard, Mary, the little sister, they're both adults, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach the disciples. And Martha, like a good sister, says, Jesus, come on, can you tell Mary to get over here and help? All the social expectations of the village are on us. And you're the Lord. We want to serve you. I mean, it sounds very much like any couple of siblings, right? Mom, she's not helping. Jesus says to her in verse 41 and 42 of Luke 10, Martha, Martha. The beauty of the doubling of the name is Martha, I know you. I know you. I know all about you, Martha. Martha. You're not a stranger to me, I know you. And in that moment, he's saying, I love you and care about you. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Literally, you have a divided heart. That's what anxious about many things means. You have a divided heart. Your heart is pursuing more than one thing. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, meaning the food that you actually need. The food that you actually need is sitting at my feet, not the meal, not the wine, not the party that's going to be happening later on. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Everything else you can lose. You can lose this house. You can lose your wealth. You can lose your social status. You can lose your honor. Everything else you can lose except for me, Martha. Single-hearted devotion to me, Martha. The place of contentment and peace and true life is not in being perfect, nor in never failing. Achievements, no matter how many you have, will not quiet your anxious and striving heart. It's at the feet of Jesus with single-hearted devotion and that takes cultivation over time. This is seen in some of the studies that have been done of late about bonding and attachment. So I know nothing about bonding and attachment theory, but I'm gonna talk about it for a moment here. Biologists, psychologists, neuroscientists, pretty much everyone from truck drivers to academics are looking into bonding theory, which is basically how infants bond with a parent and then grow up and how that helps them to gain wholeness and completion as they grow up older. And basically it's this, strong emotional attachment to one parent, very often a mother feeding the baby, but to one parent may help prevent disease, 
boost immunity, enhance intelligence, and leave you less stressed growing up, therefore more whole, if you would. One science study said that cuddled baby rabbits have better cholesterol than non-cuddled baby rabbits. So scientists literally are walking around petting the baby rabbits while looking at the others in the cage saying, "Uh uh-uh, you don't get any of this. And the ones that are being pet and cuddled have a hormone release that reduces bad cholesterol in their body. So all of you older men, you don't need to eat better. You don't need to exercise. You don't need statins. You just need to be cuddled. So the theory goes. (laughs) Bonding between infant and mother, between a child and any parental unit, doesn't even have to be your own parent. Somebody functioning as that, an adopted parent, just an adult who cares, that that bonding develops over time. With the infant, it involves feeding and eye contact, touch, the smell of the mother, the mother's voice. So what might this child-mother metaphor in Psalm 131 say about us relating to God? It suggests that our souls are designed to bond with God. We do that in prayer and devotion and worship and in community with one another over time. Are you familiar with the touch and voice of God? Do you trust him to give you the food you need or are you seeking it somewhere else? That bonding doesn't happen instantaneously. It is cultivated over time. It's amazing that our relationship with God is compared to the intimacy of a mother feeding and embracing her baby. It's beautiful It's crazy, it's powerful, but it's something that even if you've never had children and you don't remember being an infant, we can get the imagery there. Brene Brown, in her more famous TED Talk on vulnerability, suggested in her studies on shame that we are all wired, wired for connection that being a wholehearted and whole adult involves relationships. But shame and fear keep us from the vulnerability with one another that is necessary for connection. Shame and fear are built around these ideas that circle in our head that is the questioning of this. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, I won't be worthy of connection? The gospel tells us this. What God offers us in a relationship with Jesus Christ is to be known and loved infinitely no matter what. God is the one who knows you. Martha, Martha. Who knows about your anxieties, your imperfections, your failures, your weaknesses. He knows your diaper is dirty and he still loves you. Oh, Christ Church Vienna, put your hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.